Listener Production. I still find myself in situations like that when it feels really difficult to say no, which is why it's like my favourite thing ever when I see young girls saying no, because it, it should be their favourite word. How do you define consent? Consent is about giving permission for something to happen. And it means you knowingly and freely agree to take part in sex or sexual activity. So my big question this week is around consent. And I'm joined by New South Wales Young Woman of the Year, activist, sexual consent champion, and a voice for her generation, Chanel Contes. Chanel has written an amazing book called Consent Laid Bare. It is an absolute game changer and it is about sex and consent. And I believe it's something that every woman and man should read. Chanel is gonna help us answer the big question. Is consent just about saying yes or no to having sex? Before we get started, this is an adult conversation. It does cover sex and sexual violence. And if this brings up anything for you, help is available by contacting 1800RESPECT for a safe place to talk day and night. Chanel, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love what you do. My daughters love what you do. You've inspired so many women and men. So I'm busting to talk to you about our big question, which is, is consent just about saying yes or no to having sex? It's a great question. The most simple answer is no. And I think there's a lot of things to unpack to understand why. All the way from the fact that if we go back to the socialization of young people, you know, we constantly say no means no when we're talking about narratives around consent. But we fail to teach young girls how to say no, and we fail to teach young boys how to accept a no and how to accept rejection without feeling hurt or, you know, attacked in any way. So that means that it's a lot more complicated than that. There's different trauma responses to unsafe situations, that means that someone may not be able to say the word no in a moment. There's also situations where people feel unsafe and act in a way that appeases the person who makes them feel unsafe in order to get out of the situation. That's called fawning. And what that means is we need to go much beyond this kind of like black and white yes and no into a more nuanced and human-centered understanding of consent. Because consent can also be revoked. Consent is dynamic. It's ever-changing. It must be informed. All of these things make it so that consent is not just a question. And as you say too, it's not just a simple yes or no answer. It can be revoked. You might say, yes, kiss me or touch me here, touch me there. But then you might then say, well, no, I don't want to do that and I don't want to have sex with you or I don't want you to pull my hair or put your hands around my neck that we often see in some pornography. So there's all of those steps, aren't they, along the way? Yeah, and also you may have consensual sex with someone once. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're consenting forever. There's still many countries around the world, unfortunately, where marital rape is seen as... You know, that's not a possibility. It's seen as an oxymoron to have those two words together because by marrying someone, that implies consent forever. It took until relatively recently in Australia for marital rape to be criminalised everywhere and understood that marrying someone doesn't give them permission to your body forever. So it is definitely much more nuanced than 
than the simple question saying, I do once doesn't give permission forever. And it's interesting you raise that particularly because I spoke recently to Mel B from the Spice Girls and she's been incredibly open about the abusive relationship she was in. She was married for 10 years. And just have a listen to what she's had to say about consent. We need to make sure that our children grow up with morals, with ground rules, with respect for our own bodies and each other's bodies. And there has to be kind of an understanding that that it's not okay to do that. Whether it be a fetish or whether it be something that you impose on somebody, when you're taking somebody out of a safe environment and making them not feel safe without their consent, that's no. And no means no, whether you whisper it or whether your body language says it. Yeah, love Mel B. Agree. And I think the key thing she said there that stuck out to me is whether your body language says it, because that is one of the key ways that consent is often inferred from someone. I think that this kind of conversation that's been happening recently about consent and sexual assault has made some people who, you know, want to make sure that they don't accidentally sexually assault someone kind of freak out about these things, being like, how do I ask for it? Do I do it every time? Is it going to come across as really unsexy or awkward? And, you know, it adds like a bit of a layer to all of these situations where for some people, first sexual encounters can already be quite awkward and confusing and overthinking them. But the thing is, body language is one of the biggest signifiers of consent. And the the thing is then, you know, if someone like winks at you in a bar, that doesn't mean that they're saying, you know, we can have sex later tonight. But if you're in a sexual situation with someone and someone is being enthusiastic towards you, they're responding to your body movements, they're leaning towards you, they're kissing you back, they're being passionate in the moment too, that can be inferred consent. I always recommend that, especially in first sexual encounters, it is always better to explicitly ask. But body language is such a telltale sign because if someone is freezing up or feeling uncomfortable or turning away or you know, kind of making excuses, keep turning their head looking for a friend to go back to the party, these are all ways of saying it's time to stop now. I think what is phenomenal about what you're doing, what the book that you've just written does, is that it helps give us a language to have these sorts of discussions. Because as you said at the outset, it's nuanced and it can be tricky. And often in those early days of intimacy, you're a teenager, you don't know what you're doing, there's peer pressure, there's all sorts of things. It can be hard to know well, what is it that I actually want in the midst of this? Mm. So if you, I'm thinking about our listeners and mainly they're women, there are mums listening, but then there's also many older women who mightn't have kids, but they're looking back to their earlier sexual experiences and realise, actually, I didn't give my consent to that. Mm. No, I know. I think that language is one of the most powerful tools that we have as humans, language and education and knowledge. I mean, knowledge is power. We all know that. And I think that being able to not only in yourself have that language to be able to understand and start processing that those kind of things that happened before, have the language to understand, you know, what types of perpetrators exist and what type of perpetrator yours may have been or understanding trauma responses to sexual assault, to understanding why you reacted in the way you did, all those sort of things. That is so beneficial for the individual. But what is even better is if the people around them also have that language so that when they do try to explain things to people, they're not getting backlash about rape myths or victim blaming or slut shaming of all these things back. It's more understanding how these situations can occur 
so easily unless we try to prevent them and ensuring that they have the space to speak to people around them about that. And how we can prevent them is by what you have made happen. And there are very few people who can say, I've changed the world. (laughs) And you have with your Teach Us Consent program that is in schools now. Yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah, so in February 2021... I started a petition for consent education to be mandated in the Australian curriculum. And because of 50,000 Australians signing the petition and almost 7,000 young people posting their stories of sexual assault in the form of testimonies anonymously on this website, it gained the attention of policymakers and politicians around the country. And all ministers of education around the country unanimously agreed to mandate consent education in schools starting from this year, which is very exciting and incredible. But That is baseline minimum of being like, how can we teach our kids what sexual assault is and how to not commit sexual assault and what consent is and that consent is needed for that. But we need to, I think, as a society, take a step further to think about, well, what's the ideal of sex? What's healthy intimacy? How can we strive towards a world where mutual pleasure is the norm, where communication is the standard practice and that sexual assault wouldn't be something that could occur easily, but it would have to be an anomaly that someone is actively trying to do in order to do it. I'm very much of the thought process that the vast majority of instances of sexual assault in Australia are preventable with education. And as soon as I heard this stat, it it made so much sense to me. It was kind of like, I guess, intuitive to me to know this already, but it was really powerful to hear that the most likely demographic to perpetrate sexual assault in Australia is a 15 to 19 year old boy. And when you think about that, you're like, well, let's guess who the most likely victims are probably going to be then, their sexual partners or the people around them. And that is obviously heartbreaking, but I'm also quite optimistic about that because I think we have such an opportunity to change that because these people, that demographic, pretty much all of them are children, they're under the age of 18, they are so influenced by culture and our current culture allows sexual assault and sexual harassment and misogynistic comments and these gendered norms and a very strict gendered power hierarchy to thrive. But we can so easily flip the switch on that with the way that we have these sort of conversations, the way we teach empathy, the way we teach gender equality, the way we explain that rapists are not some anomaly scary guy who, you know, jumps at you on the street. And who you don't know, who's the psychopath. I mean, that's really that figure that you say about 15 to 19-year-old boys. It's someone that you know. Yeah, it is. And Or one of your friends knows. Yeah, I mean, I truly think that most of those instances are perpetrated out of ignorance, a lack of education, and a lack of awareness around these things because we can't forget that the main form of sex education for that same demographic is mainstream pornography, which is almost always degrading towards women, does not exhibit any form of consent in it, is often quite violent towards women as well. And that is the normal. Pornography is a very dictating force on our psyches, on our subconscious, and it's the only form of education for a lot of young people on these sort of topics. So we need to really strongly counteract that narrative. So how do we do that? And I think what I found for me, there were lots of light bulb moments reading your book, but one that I found especially refreshing was that 
you're anti-porn. Yeah. You sort of say, basically, if you're going to watch porn, that's anti-feminist because the porn that people are consuming, you don't know if it's consensual, you don't know if they're paid well, and that they depict violent imagery. And as you say, that is not what sex is. And how, though, apart from I tell my daughters, you know, porn isn't sex. They're like, yes, mum, we know you've told us many times. Mm. But not everyone is having those conversations. And often I think as parents of daughters, we have conversations, but I wonder if enough parents of sons have those conversations. I don't know. I think we definitely need to have them more because I think there's also two layers to this. There's porn literacy in the sense of, you know, telling our children that this is not realistic, you know, this is scripted, this is not what sex is supposed to be like. An analogy I always use is allowing children to learn sex from watching pornography is the same as if we allowed them to drive by watching Formula One and think about how dangerous the roads would be if that was their driving instructing school. How can we, I suppose, in a way, get through to young men? Because I've heard just sort of anecdotally when, you know, there might be talks at schools about consent to boys' schools or male environment that essentially they just, they laugh. They pay lip service to it in the sense they're there listening but not really. Mm. And then they laugh afterwards and, and think it's a joke. How is it that we can change that kind of mindset around it? Well... I think even if the boys kind of like laugh and snicker about it, I still think they listen to it. Like, I still think the information is coming through. It's quite rare for young people that authority figures in their life decide that they're going to speak to them explicitly about sex or consent. So I do think that their interest peaks regardless of the responses. And then I guess my other thing to that would be to say maybe it would be better than to have young people like more peer-on-peer education because I know when I speak it, schools I mean I've obviously had a few you know comments from boys and like things like that and whatever but they're really listening like they are engaged and maybe it's because I am very explicit in my message and I'm I don't beat around the bush but so what do you say to them I just straight up I have this slide that says blue balls are fake news <laughs> and I don't know do you know what blue balls are of course yeah <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know what blue I think unfortunately we all know what blue balls are but it's this kind of like pervading narrative that if a man is turned on and then does not ejaculate, he experiences like extreme pain in his testicles and they're called blue balls in youth. And like when people used to talk about it when we were younger, it would very much be this thing that it was basically like, oh, if you gave a guy an erection, you know, you gave a guy an erection, <laughs> whenever a guy had an erection and doesn't orgasm because you say you don't want to do anything, it's embarrassing you to have done that. Like you gave him blue balls, you led him on and you didn't do anything about it. And whilst blue balls is a real medical condition, it has some name I don't know. It is, But it's so rare. It's so I rare. I mean, hello, <laughs> uh, what about having um, a blue vulva? Exactly. Could we have that? Well, <laughs> exactly. Of, you know. You can. So funnily enough, the experience of females and males when they are turned on and do not ejaculate is the, or like do not have a relief, is the exact same form of discomfort. But the fact that blue balls pervades as a narrative is reflective of the male sexual entitlement to that sort of feeling. Whereas women are very much conditioned to sit in discomfort. Our pleasure has never been sent to these conversations. So we don't complain about blue vulva, even though it feels the exact same. And anyway, yeah, I have a full on slide that say like blue balls are fake news and you should just see silence in the room and me being like, telling someone that you're giving them blue balls is a form of sexual coercion if you're trying to guilt them into a sexual activity to relieve you of this. Go sort it out yourself. 
that. They're not laughing. <laughs> they are listening. Now, there's probably people listening, reflecting on their sexual lives and thinking, oh, that's what was happening then, that mm. there were situations that we found ourselves in that we wouldn't have agreed to, but because we didn't have that language or weren't aware to actually go, well, no, mm. I'm not into you. This mm. isn't giving me pleasure, but it's all about, well, are they going to be all right? Is the bloke going to be okay? I really think we're missing a massive conversation around female sexuality, especially in young girls. I talk about it in the book. There's so much taboo around self-pleasure and like, you know, I'd never heard of anyone talk about vibrators until I was in uni. And then, you know, my friend got her first vibrator and was like, you guys will have to get one. It was like game changing to have someone just be that refreshing and open about these sort of things. Meanwhile, the boys that we've been hanging out with since we were 12 years old talk openly about like, you know, the place they've had a wank, the things they're wanking to, the thing, you know, all this to the point where it's basically sexual harassment, how explicitly they're speaking to us about these things. And I think that's also quite common in like lots of TV, pop culture, like sitcoms. I have noticed recently like the few series I've watched that have been produced or, you know, created in the last few years, like Sex Education and Heartbreak High and all these sort of things tend to have a much more holistic lens on concepts such as consent and mutual pleasure and communication and stuff like that. But if you think about the types of narratives we grew up with, like, I mean, I grew up watching like 2000s rom-coms and stuff like that, which are still some of my favorite movies, but you watch them back and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) Yes. What is that message? No. Yes. Picking up on what you're saying about, I think, Heartbreak High especially depicts teenage sexuality in a really empowering way and also consent in a sexy way Mm. that you can see there's some language around how you can ask, is this all right? Can I touch you here? And and another movie, different demo, but I loved it, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which was, oh, it's wonderful. (laughs) Emma Thompson is a much older woman and she hires a male escort. And they have this extraordinary relationship together. But the way that consent is depicted within that is really beautiful. Okay. And sexy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that we start exhibiting this way more often because, I mean, we exhibit the sex scenes all the time in movies and all the time in TV shows. We see them everywhere and there's no reason that that can't be scripted in, that they can't be embedded in it to, again, exhibit and show young people how you're supposed to engage in these sort of things in a, you know, normal way. And also to how you can change your mind. You know, you might be thinking, yes, okay, I do want to have sex with this person, Mm. but then actually, no, I don't. So there are ways that you can change your mind and get out of that situation. Mm. Another thing that kind of resonated with me was when you talk about when you were living in the UK and you had done all of this work already around the teacher's consent, and then a man came up to you on the street and he wanted to take your picture Mm. for social media. And he kept badgering you about moving to here, to pose here, and you sort of, he wore you down basically. Mm. And you were going, no, no, but then you're like, okay, okay. And I just thought that was so fascinating. Someone like yourself who is aware of the language around, if I don't want to do something, I don't want to do it. Mm. But there's still almost that sense within us as women that we want to be nice, that Uh, that we want to do the right thing. Yeah. And And also... No, I think it's so subconscious in us because, again, it comes to the way we were socialised. 
we weren't socialised to say like, no, we weren't socialised to tell, like to be rude. It's not, it's not seen as, you know, ladylike to tell someone to like F off or like whatever. And to end that story as well for the listeners who um, haven't read the book yet <laughs> is that um, basically this man ended up getting me like a kilometre or two away from my house and I had that moment of being like, how did I get here? I'm now with a strange man. And that's when I put my foot down and was like, I'm going home, like goodbye and walked away. Um, even though he wasn't physically forcing me in any way to get there, it was just kind of like he kept asking and I felt quite bad saying no. And then I found out later, like quite a few months later, that he had done a very similar thing to another woman, but that had ended in a sexual assault. And in my mind, I was like, see, that's the exact type of way that that behavior of him being persistent, not physically intimidating, not scary. Because the thing is, he looked like a completely normal, you know, he was like a handsome young man asking to take my photo because he liked my outfit. He was like, oh yeah, compliment, whatever. I didn't want to do it because I was busy. But the whole point is, if he was like a really scary dude, I would have straight up from the get-go been like, no, I'm going home, leave me alone, I'm calling my friend, like I'm whatever. But because he seemed so normal and approachable and friendly, it didn't cross my mind to feel threatened by him. I know this and... I still find myself in situations like that when it feels really difficult to say no, which is why it's like my favorite thing ever when I see young girls saying no, because it should be their favorite word. Oh, and what I think as well is so hopeful, a reason to be hopeful, is I listen to my daughters and their friends speak, and they are far more articulate and stand up for themselves far more than I ever did at their age. And that's also very much because of you in giving them that agency and voice. And, you know, I remember a time with Allegra, who's now 16, but this was when she was 14. She basically told these older men to F off, to stop sort of abusing her. She was just walking past them in Bondi. You know, you know I'm only 14, you effing pedophile. And <laughs> Iconic from her. Yes, but I... But to me, the struggle was, though, when she told me that, I was very proud, but there was also a part of me that was frightened Mm -hmm. because I thought, oh my God, what if, okay, she does that, but what if they then turn around and are violent to her or do something else? And that's, I think, almost the rub where we we want our daughters and our sons to stand Mm -hmm. up, but when they do that, I'm still as a parent fearful of what those consequences are. It's such a good point because it is so true and it is the reason why we stay silent so often when I don't, like I, in London, it's very common to get kind of like harassed in the street and I understand now, but I remember in the early days, I would just kind of like walk home, head down, not say anything, even though I do want to turn around and say what Allegra said and tell them to, you know, but um, it's dangerous to do that. If you're walking alone at night and a man harasses you, it is dangerous to reject men. It's, that's the whole reason that people freeze, people fawn, they try to appease the perpetrator to get out of the situation safely. And it is a really hard line of like wanting to stand up for yourself and ensuring your safety at the same time, which is why so many people go along with sexual acts just to get out of the situation alive rather than putting their lives at risk. Because the reality is that men can and do kill women who reject them or damage their egos. Not often, but you know, often enough. One man a week in Australia kills a woman, former ex-partner. And I think the way I personally handle that is, say I'm in like a crowded bar and someone grabs my ass, I will turn around and tell them 
you know, that's not okay. What are you doing? Like, I'll get someone, like, whatever. You know, ask the security guard to kick someone out, things like that. If I was walking alone on the street, no, I wouldn't do those sort of things. If Allegra was in Bondi in broad daylight and there were people around, it's probably quite safe for her to say something like that. But if she was alone in the city and the only person around, then that is very dangerous. And although they probably, it's unlikely they would retaliate, it is still a possibility that we need to be aware of as women, unfortunately. That's what makes my blood boil. And it it happens time and time again with Giselle, who you've met, she's 14. There was a group of them leaving a friend's birthday party with parents. And it was sort of in a very public part of Sydney. And they were leaving to walk to the car park. And this group of boys came up and started being really overly sexual and just being vile and rude and yelling at the girls. And the parents were there, but these boys still did not back down and they had to call security. And so now the girls are wanting to do self-defence, which I think is great. They want to do that, but it makes me angry that That we can't just go out and have a, you know, as a 53-year-old woman, I think of things that I went through. Mm. I know for many of our listeners, there were things they've gone through. And then I think, oh, are we still here? Yeah. Are there still things like this that are happening? Yeah. And also, like you said, I've you know I've met your daughters and I'm thinking if a, if a grown man's harassing them in the street, what are they going to... How far can self-defence go? Like, you know, they're two young, petite girls. But it's also something crazy to me that I realise from personal experience, from speaking to friends and also from speaking to girls in schools, it's a power thing. And school girls are obviously some of the most vulnerable subset of the population. They're young. They're, you know, still in the process of their education. They're symbolizing their underage and they are then preyed on. It's so creepy. I mean, like, when I think back to it, when I was a school uniform, I actually don't think a single week went by where I did not get harassed by, like, grown men. Yeah, it's despicable and outrageous. It's everywhere. Yeah. But again, because of what you're doing, Chanel, you're leading this change, which I think is so exciting. Just finally, for people who are listening and they want to have a conversation, either to their daughters, to their sons, to people they know, what's a good starting point? Because it can sometimes be scary. It can be really scary. I understand that there's, you know, unfortunately we have this like barrier between speaking to parents about, you know, these topics, these intimate topics. Cause it's meant to be like, gross mom, don't like, I don't want to hear it. And I mean, absolute shameless plug, but I actually genuinely do think reading my book is a good place to start to equip yourself with the language maybe reading it in conjunction with your kids so that you can talk through all these themes together and kind of see what comes out from it. But then I also think a really good place to start is going into a conversation with your child, being willing to make sure that you will take on any feedback that they say in the conversation as well. Because young people know more than anyone what's actually going on in their lives, what's actually relevant to them. Like maybe people are being warned about things that, you know, they know very well now and we actually need to have more conversations about technology-facilitated sexual abuse and like things like that that may be more relevant to young people. So maybe a good place to start is saying to your kid, like, what do you know about consent? Like, what, what do you know about sex? And like, if you can fact-check things, fact-check them. If you don't know them, look them up. Making sure that there's no kind of false information. Like, do not be scared to educate yourself or say you don't know something and don't let that put off the conversation. Because a lot of people, you know, have kind of the generation of, parents who now have teenage kids, a lot of them grew up without this sort of education being explicitly taught to them. I didn't. 
Yeah. We, we had no idea. So essentially, you know, getting back to our big question of is consent just about saying yes or no to having sex with this discussion that we've had, Chanel, it's so clear that no, it, yeah. is, it is not just simply about that. But what I do love about one of your sort of ideas or philosophies is that the world would be a better place if we encourage boys to cry and girls to masturbate. Yes, amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> amen to that. <laughs> More men feeling their emotions and being able to deal with rejection and processing things and more girls being empowered to know their own bodies and accept their own sexualities. And love it. And yeah. actually see the joy and the pleasure in intimacy and sex. Yeah, I mean, that's such a thing that I think I put this anecdote in my book, but when I was in year four, someone spray painted the back of the bathroom block saying, sex is fun in giant letters. And like, obviously we're all in year four, like whispering, like, oh my God, like what's sex? Like, what's this? Blah, 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 blah. All these fake news rumors went around about what sex was. But it started a conversation of sex around our peers that never stopped. We just were completely uninformed. Like, I think back to the things we used to think and they're actually comical how uneducated we were on everything. Like I used to think that like sperm was one single cell only and like just all these sort of things. And I realized that that was the only time in my schooling career. And when I say schooling career, I don't just mean at school in formal setting. I mean, in terms of like my friends, in terms of like my, you know, my parents, like things I learned in media, like all this sort of stuff. It was the only time it was ever told to me that sex was supposed to be an enjoyable experience. And it is. And I don't know why we want to pretend that it shouldn't be for girls and that it's something that they should resist because all that does is mean that young girls struggle to distinguish between consensual and non-consensual sexual situations if they're constantly told that sex is something that they're meant to avoid, that's going to be painful, that's, you know, something that you lose and the man wins from. We want to be winners. And thanks to you, Chanel, we will be. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jess. I tell you what, Chanel Contis is so inspiring and I was lucky enough to go to her book launch and I got quite emotional watching her talk on stage and I just marvelled at how articulate she is and the change that she is making for so many of us. It's not just change for teenage girls, I think it's for all of us, for women and men of all ages. So Chanel's book, Consent Laid Bare, is designed to be read by anyone navigating those tricky complexities of desire and sexual consent in this age of entitlement. I really recommend it. There is so much in there. And I think if it is a discussion that you're thinking about having with your family, with your friends, even reflecting on what's happened to you in the past, there is something in that book for you. For more big conversations like this with Chanel, subscribe and follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. It means you'll never, ever miss an episode. <laughs>